This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Karen Skinner, who previously served as the director of policy planning at the U.S. Department of State and is now the top professor of international relations and politics at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. They discuss Dr. Skinner's work as an editor on the book Reagan in his own hand, and they analyze the changing policy landscape with emerging challenges posed by Russia, China, and others. Dr. Karen Skinner, welcome to Reaganism. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you here at the Reagan Institute uh, to record this episode with you, given your contributions uh, to Reagan's scholarship in particular. Uh, now, of course, you're the Talby Professor of International Relations and Politics at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, where you teach graduate courses in national security and public leadership. You're also the W. Glenn Campbell Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. You've been affiliated there for, for a long time. And I just referenced a moment ago, uh, you are the co-author of Ronald Reagan, His Own Hand, and Reagan, A Life in Letters, amongst other publications, seminal contributions to Reagan scholarship. And last, you served as director of policy planning in the State Department during the Trump administration. So we're going to spend time together now for the next 35 minutes or so talking Reagan and then talking uh, the world today, the state of national security and foreign policy, given your subject matter expertise. But let's start with your your books on Reagan and, and the two I want to highlight, Reagan in his own hand and a life in letters. Tell us about how you came as a graduate uh, a student, I believe, or maybe it was when you were already teaching, uh, to do this work on, on Reagan. Well, I never thought I'd work on Reagan. I was a graduate student during his presidency the entire time. But when I was offered the post of being the research assistant for George Schultz for his memoir, I learned more about the end of the Cold War, about the American contribution to the end of the Cold War, which was being ignored at the time, and Ronald Reagan himself. I began doing um, archival research for Secretary Schultz, and the more I learned about U.S. foreign policy the more I realized everything pointed back to Reagan. And I thought there was a bigger story there. At the um, By the end of the Cold War, there was a book by someone your dad probably knows <laughs> well. You may have heard of Raymond Gartoff. He had been at the Brookings Institution. And he wrote a book about one of the early books about the end of the Cold War. And I think I'm quoting him almost directly. He said, um, Mikhail Gorbachev set out to and ended the Cold War. And I think that was the state of the literature, not because or just because scholars were anti-Reagan, but many were, um, but because the Soviet archives were opening up in the early 90s for the first time. Mm. And there was excitement about using those archives until the um, um, state, um, the Duma passed state secret laws and closed them down. Um, the Hoover Institution acquired quite a bit of the Politburo mi uh, minutes and meetings. Um, and so there was just interest in what was going on in the Soviet side and the Eastern European side. And I thought, we have the freest um, information system in the world. Why aren't um, scholars going to the Reagan Library? 
So I did a postdoc at UCLA after Schultz's memoir, finally finishing my PhD at Harvard. And I was there virtually alone most of the time. Nancy Reagan gave me access to um, the private papers of the, the president and Edmund Morris was then the official biographer. And I never saw him there once. <laughs> and I thought he's gonna use all this material because he had access to everything. Um, but those those boxes went untouched. And there was quite a bit also at the Hoover Institution Archives under various names, Citizens for the Republic um, and um, the Committee on the Present Danger and various papers no one had been looking at um, in years. And then the Reagan papers were, were closed to the public. And that's where I found the radio scripts. That's where I found all the writings and um, thousands upon thousands of letters going back to age 12. So here you are, you come upon Reagan's radio addresses, amongst other items which you just referenced. Tell everybody what's so unique about these radio addresses, because they're not the sort of thing that uh, perhaps the president had edited right. based on what some staffer or speechwriter delivered to him. As the name of the book suggests, this was Reagan in his own hand. It's cute yeah. to tell, you've talked about this before, but yeah. it's almost thrilling to hear about this Indiana Jones-like moment of discovery and, and what, what you encountered. It was, it was really hard to believe that um, I was working with the original papers. They'd been, they looked like they'd been in a basement or a garage for years. They were in no particular order, just thrown together. They had to be pieced back together. Um, but they were page after page of handwritten drafts on yellow yellow writing paper, um, letter and legal size, where Reagan was working out his ideas, scratching out um, whole sentences, writing in the margins. And he often cited his research, which is really important. And that's reflected in Reagan is in his own hand. So one got to see what was shaping his thinking in the 70s. And he was building on the work of Bill Buckley, of the Hoover Institution, AEI and Heritage, um, of many of the conservative scholars and thinkers of the time. And I also found how he got to know some of them. Um, Gene Kirkpatrick, all of this was taking place um, really with by Reagan um, alone writing and thinking. And the reason that I knew it was Reagan was that at that time, he basically was being managed by Peter Hannaford mm -hmm. and Michael Deaver. I think those are names you know. And they formed a little firm that represented him with the radio scripts, but he didn't have a research team. And they could not possibly have done the work, nor did they say they had done it. And the book that helped me kind of guide my way through all of this was Peter Hannaford's book. The Reagan's a political portrait. Haven't said that name um, in a long time, hmm. but he chronicles Reagan in the 70s. You can understand Reagan after his gubernatorial years and before the presidency without Hannaford's book. And that was my guide in the archives. But Reagan did a lot of research. He didn't get it all right. You know, maybe he noted there were too many welfare queens in Chicago. Um, you know, there were um, those kinds of um, errors and mistakes. But for the most part, it was solid research that he was doing. And so these would be per episode two um, legal size memo paper written in his own a penmanship, right? His own, in his own hand. 
that would basically take about three or so minutes. And he delivered it. He recorded them in bunches. And during this period, roughly between 1976 and 1980, when he, when he no longer could do this running for president, it would uh, be on the radio every day, you know, five days a week, whatever, five, five days a week with some 20 million Americans listening to him. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I think it was 75 to 79 when he announced in November, three minutes a day, five days a week. He, his um, radio broadcaster was a man named Harry O'Connor. He would um, go into a studio in Los Angeles with three weeks of radio scripts that he had himself had drafted. I never saw one that was drafted by someone else. Mm. Read them on one take and go on and do about 10 speeches a month. And that was his um, kind of political wilderness years. And he got to know the American public. And by the 1980 um, primaries, Republican primaries, the candidates were saying, everywhere we go, all of these flyover states, um, the public knows Reagan knows that they were hearing him on the radio. He was running a stealth campaign. So he was in some big markets. I think he was in Los Angeles, but not all of the big ones, but he was in the markets where he needed to get to the voters. And that, I think, was the basis for his 1980 presidential campaign. story that's captured, I believe, at the beginning of the book. And if our listeners and viewers listen to the CDs that you can download on Audible now and, and, and listen to Reagan's radio addresses. Can of course, you you, Oh, you can absolutely. So I don't get royalties. No, no, well, you should get, take it up with the people from Audible guy on, but it's amazing. Cause I, I only started listening to him perhaps, I don't know a year or so ago. Uh, it's really enjoyable. It's one thing to read them yeah. second to hear him deliver. Uh, but I, I believe in the intro there tells a story about why Reagan chose to do the radio addresses instead of doing TV. Mm-hmm. You would think the actor, the, the the person who appeared in movies would be very comfortable with doing, you know, TV rather than just radio, though career, of course, started in radio. And the exchange, I believe, with Mike Deaver, who was helping negotiate the concert, was something like, they're going to get sick of looking at me. Mm-hmm. I'd, rather the, I'd rather the people hear from me. Yeah. And it turned out to be a good decision probably because more people listened to him than than otherwise would have seen him during this period between 75 and 79, as you point out. I think that's right. And I think it was to be a spot with Walter Cronkite and Mm. it would not have been, I think, a good move, but most who um, politicians would not have understood that Reagan having been an actor understood an audience. And sometimes you have to disappear. And I think he understood that, but he, he disappeared without disappearing. He went to hmm. the broader American base, the, the base that um, the others couldn't mobilize because he'd been talking to them. And this was before talk radio. So he was, um, the audience couldn't call in and give their opinions. But what they did do is that they wrote to yes. him. And so that was his way of having a conversation with the American public. He saw what worked. He saw what concerned people. He saw what didn't work. And some of that's reflected as well in the letters. So while we were, I was doing, along with Marty and Annalise Anderson, who were amazing partners in this, and the books could not have been done, any of them without them, because they served in the Reagan administration as domestic and economic advisors, and I'm on the foreign policy side, and I hadn't served with Reagan. Um, but we, what we found was, after I did the, um, found all of the Reagan scripts, 
that there were lots of letters, and many of the letters were responses to people who were listening to him on radio. So he was having this massive conversation with the American public, and no one knew it. The breadth of the radio addresses is is astounding. It is. Uh, I'm just looking at this amazing index that's yeah. in Reagan, his own hand, where yeah. you list the subjects, the titles, but the titles capture the, the subject. And it's everything from poverty to capital gains to agriculture day to Cuba to census and sports and religion and strategy. I mean, it's, it is comprehensive yeah. and it's striking as you, you noted at the outset, he was writing all on these subjects. He was putting pen to paper and organizing his thoughts in a coherent fashion, sometimes not getting the detail right, but, but most of the time he was. And as you note, you see the authority he was relying on. And rarely do you, the ones I've read and listened to, do you see him advancing his own personal view. He is oftentimes adding a slight commentary on the views or authority of other experts out there, whether it's human events right. or a retired general or you know, Eugene Rostow talking about arms limitation treaty. I mean, he, he it was, it was idea driven very he, much. He was, so. And he covered almost every major issue, domestic and foreign facing the nation in the late seventies. And he, some of it was pretty esoteric and you would think he would not have known about it. For example, in 1975, um, NSC 68, that major Cold War document was declassified. That's the subject of radio scripts by Reagan. Amazing. How many people during the Reagan presidency would have believed, including cabinet members, that he had read NSC 68? And the way that I know that he read it, we found a copy um, of NSC 68 attached to the draft of the, the, the radio scripts that he did with him underlining um, parts of that document. So the foundational document for containment um, in 1950 is something that Reagan himself crafted by Paul Nitza, right? Yes, and Who's Paul Nitza. Paul Nitza a lot, who subsequently his name would come up throughout radio addresses as he, that is Reagan would critique the Carter administration's approach, approach to Soviet Union, and detente arms and arms control. And Paul Nitza would, would surface and he would meet with him subsequently. Yes. And, and Nitza would work for Reagan Yeah, yeah. and the whole walk in the woods, um, you know, and so um, many of the people who would become characters in the Reagan administration didn't even know that Reagan knew them. Um, he knew them um, on paper and through the, the radio programs before. So I think you can't understand the Reagan presidency without those scripts. So let's delve into that last point. Again, we're with Chiron Skinner, noted scholar, uh, co-editor of Reagan in his own hand with, of course, Annalise and Martin Anderson and senior official in the Trump administration leading policy planning in the State Department. You have a really wonderful formulation of what Reagan's foreign policy and national security outlook was in many respects informed mm -hmm. by what you uncovered and revealed to the world uh, through his radio addresses, Reagan, his own hand. Tell us a little bit about kind of, if you had to summarize, usually it's like four or five elements that you often refer to maybe uh, different, uh, you know, now in terms of what Reagan came into the office 
with his strategy and outlook vis-a-vis the Soviet Union um, and the Cold War that is really gleaned from his radio addresses. Um, there's a, um, and not Reagan in his own hand doesn't just include um, radio scripts, but other writings. There's a section called Other Writings. Mm-hmm. And there's one document that has been referred to over and over again in um, many books. And that is one around 1962. And it it's a typescript. So it's not clear that Reagan wrote it, but he probably delivered it. And it was really his earliest writing that I could find where he outlined the strategy for the end of the Cold War. And he basically says, um, we want mutual co- cooperation. We don't want war. Um, and we want to extend the olive branch to the other side. But for us, mutual cooperation means basically that the Soviet Union would join the community of free states. So he was saying, ending the Cold War in our terms. Years later, um, Dick Allen, his first Reagan's first national security advisor, said that in the late 70s, he met with Reagan. And Reagan said, um, his version of the end of the Cold War is we, we win, they lose. I think the 1960s document is a elegant attempt to develop that idea. So I think that in some ways is the most important strategy document well before the radio scripts in the early 1960s. Last point on this, and then we'll delve into issues of the day. But it does demonstrate that is your your research and 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 work published Reagan his own hand and others that this notion that Reagan came into office uh, with an undeveloped worldview with sensibilities that weren't quite cultivated uh, whether you want to refer to him as you know the actor who needed his staff to kind of share tell him what he should believe or what he should say. I mean, fear about fire. There's no smoke here once you go through this stuff. No, and I think what it does is that it makes the advisors grow smaller mm. and Reagan grow larger. And there are a couple things that I tell my students whenever I teach um, American politics um, that Martin Anderson said to me because he he was on Reagan's campaign. And I think they're almost laws of politics. And he learned this from Reagan. He said 99% of getting elected president is the candidate himself, not the advisors. I've been on almost every um, Republican presidential campaign since 2000. And I have learned that empirically. If you think you're important, you should not be on Mm. the campaign. Mm. No one gets a candidate up at 4 a.m. every day, staying in Motel 6, um, talking to Americans all across the country, shaking hands um, without any sen- a sense of this is going to work. Um, so I think that's what Reagan in his own hand does, establishes that the Reagan doctrine, that Reaganism was one person, not a group of PhDs and cabinet members. Second, um, Presidential campaigns are the closest thing we have to to war in this country. (laughs) And when you look at Reagan's presidential campaign in 80 and then even in 84, um, the attempts to paint him in a certain way were really, you know, the lowest that his um, opponents could go. But the record shows differently. I think these are really important kind of laws of politics. Um, And then finally, 
um, people who run for president, even if they don't win, are more like each other than other people. And I think those things for me, I saw in the archives, heard from Martin Anderson, and then I've seen in, you know, being involved in campaigns. So for me, that all of this has come full circle. Fascinating. Well, talking about full circle, you're from your time researching president and then working for a president, uh, you found yourself in the Trump administration working on policy planning, which is the office, which is, of course, kind of the thought leadership, the, the think tank, as it were, for the Secretary of State and more broadly for American uh, diplomacy around the world. And one of the great contributions that the Trump administration made and President Trump and the team on down was recognizing that the United States was facing a competitor it had never seen before, mm -hmm. even the Soviet Union, for those who want to compare the challenge we face with China uh, to the challenge we face with Soviet Union is imperfect because the economic element is so much more substantial with, with China. And here you find yourself in this, in the Trump administration, really making the substantial turn in foreign policy and actually thinking saying China is the challenge. We're competing against China. They're an adversary. Take us through that shift and it seems to be one that is an area of continuity okay. between the Trump administration and the present-day Biden administration. Yeah, I think it's um, um, it's a big question and a really big story. And first of all, I'll go to the point about the Office of Policy Planning. It has not functioned as a think tank in, I think, decades mm. um, for the State Department or the federal government. And that's not because um, it can't. Um, but I think the pace of U.S. foreign policy is so fast now. The set of responsibilities that we have around the world has grown, that no cabinet official has the time or bandwidth um, to do long-range planning. That's a mistake. Um, it should be happening at, simultaneously at NSC, state, and DOD. I'd say the same for the Office of Net Assessment. Mm. This is not the old Andy Marshall outfit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there is a huge structural problem in our system about um, getting ready for the future. And that worries me a lot. And I think it's something we will have to try to, to work on. But on the issue of China, we did make some strides, but they were largely at the White House and largely on tariffs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In terms of a new China strategy, I don't think there was one. Um, I think there was China rhetoric. Um, that China's a problem and um, a great power competitor. That's in the NSS 2017 mm -hmm. that Nadia Shadlow and H.R. McMaster led. But they don't advance an argument. They state that, you know, this is the new geopolitical reality. They didn't have time. Um, they didn't last long. We had too many national security advisors, a lot of turnover. So the development of a new grand strategy focused on China never happened. I think the elements were there, um, but I think you need more than one administration and you need a commitment to long-term planning, which we did not have. So just for listeners and viewers, you know, Dr. Skinner here is, is hitting on uh, a very fundamental point in, in, in American foreign policy, particularly as we deal with great challenges is you need this grand strategy. You, you need to really think deeply about what the end state yeah. ought to look like and then come up with a framework towards arriving there. What I hear you saying, Chiron, is 
they, they, they did a good job of getting the attention of the country to focus on what the real problem was, that is China, but perhaps didn't go far enough or make progress against the grand strategy. Yeah. Is it your sense we still don't have a grand strategy or, or do you think the Biden administration has, has arrived at one? Yeah, I think there was a, a, a good job on problem identification. Right. But even there, there may we may have fallen short. Um, there was just too much personnel dissension within mm-hmm. the administration to develop a strategy at that level um, and not a commitment to de- developing one. And I think at, at, at bottom, there was a view that Trump's hunches and instincts weren't worth turning into hypotheses. Um, I actually had the opposite view. Hmm. I think you have no bigger responsibility than to turn a president's hunches and instincts into hypotheses, represent them to him, and and see where you land. That never happened. Did you see that with Reagan? You mentioned that you got your start, as it were, working at Hoover, um, supporting George Shultz, who, of course, was responsible, perhaps more than any other person in Reagan's cabinet, to taking the hunches and instincts. I'm not sure those are the words he would use, but but it kind of lines up and making the reality in terms of engagement with the Soviet Union and Gorbachev and, and, and the like. I think so, because um, what was not unique about that period, but what I think should have been the model for the Trump era or any era, is that George Shultz repeatedly said, I don't have a foreign policy. Ronald Reagan has a foreign policy. He he saw himself basically as his Sherpa when they traveled. We're not in an era now where cabinet members actually understand their role. They think they are the show, um, and often they don't travel with their boss. Every time Reagan got on a plane and went abroad, Schultz was there. It's not always that case, mm. the case now. And so I think that's what I learned, and that's what I thought was really the American model. It no longer is. I hope we return to it. Schultz would, he's famous for taking new ambassadors into his office, showing the globe, and say, he would say, show me your country. And they'd find their country, and he'd say, no, the United States. (laughs) Right. So that twin view of the United States is my country, and I work for a president, I don't have a separate foreign policy, I think allows a president to actually have a grand strategy. Um, I don't see how it's possible to mobilize the 80-some thousand employees of the State Department for the purpose of developing a grand strategy to advance America's interests when you have cabinet and sub-cabinet officials who think otherwise. Yeah. Let's go back to China, and then I want to bring in Russia and Iran. And you've done some writing on Russia and Iran. But b- before we go there, what should the grand strategy be vis-a-vis China? It sounds to me you've done a lot of deep thinking on this and and perhaps have a, have a sense of where we should be going. We seem to be stuck at the moment with this notion of decoupling. On the military side, there seems to be consensus we need to either keep our edge or keep pace, depending on your view of where China is, where the United States is. And then on the economic side, we there seems to be a agreement on some form of decoupling, some form of separation, not entirely, but some. And then on the political side, we really seem to be somewhat confused, something between we should engage them, but be confident, or we should really be challenging 
the Chinese Communist Party and holding them accountable and almost uh, matters like making them a pariah and, and exposing uh, what they're doing to the world, political, economic, military. Those seems to be the, the variables as you think about a grand strategy. How, how do you think about it, Karen? Um, I actually don't agree with the premise that China is our greatest threat. Mm. Um, so I, and I started to say that at the State Department, um, I got myself in my first national controversy uh, when I started talking about China. One, I'm a professor, so I'm not used to uh, reading a script. Um, <laughs> and, the, and now I understand that you need to read your script because when you go off script, um, you uh, you go off script, and especially if you're not the principal yourself, that right. um, you know. So I think I got ahead of where um, things were going, but I was consistent with Reagan, probably not with Mike Pompeo, but he never slowed down to try to understand the essence of what I was saying, and I still believe it. And I think now the um, you know the geopolitical record has shown it to be true. China is our first comprehensive global competitor. Um, I said it wrong before. I said it's our first non-Caucasian competitor. You can't talk about race in America without getting everybody upset at you. But what I was trying to say, as a non-European competitor, I think we are bringing a set of Western um, lenses to mm. a competition with a, um, a country that has a great history, an imperial history, um, a set of strategic, um, a strategic culture and ideas that are at variance with the larger Western body of work. I, and when you read many of the American scholars who work on China and Chinese scholars who are in America who work on China, they say the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, as a U.S. government official, it sounded a little bit too political, but I do think that our U.S. government is not prepared for a great power competitor that's an economic, military, political, strategic, and cultural competitor all in one. Right. Um, and Unprecedented. And, and so some of my political science colleagues on social media dinged me and said, what about Imperial Japan? And, well, it did have a faster rate of growth in the U.S. for a period in the 30s, but it basically wanted the East Asia co-prosperity sphere. China's a global, it's got a global footprint. The Soviet Union kind of had a global footprint, but it was basically a backwards economy. Right, not nuclear weapons. Right. Hardly a sustainable threat. And, um, you know, I saw it, saw it in that way. And it was part European, you know, in that, in the, in the Western That's, sense. Right. This is different. Yeah. And so it means basically a reorg of our federal government um, for this challenge. The Biden administration is um, trying. Um, it stood up what's now called the China House at state. Um, I don't like that term. I think that's the wrong term as well. It sounds like it's a tea room. <laughs> um, but I do think there's a recognition that this is different. Yes. But that said, even though it's different, I don't think it's the biggest threat. I think the biggest threat is our inability to understand that we have threats and to, to develop the set of partnerships so that no matter what threat exists, um, we're still a predominant power on earth. So what am I saying? Um, if you look at China, it has the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that it kind of co-runs with Russia. 
and it has Belton Road, and it has um, its just global footprint. It has a set of relationships that allows it to pick up the global south. India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, all are, including Saudi Arabia now, members or en route to membership of SEO. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have anything close. We have a NATO partners program, which I'm not sure what that really does. We have the Indo-Pacific Quad, but that's just four countries. And the Quad is really about one country, India. Um, you don't need to be in a new partnership with Australia and Japan. Those are our solid allies. Um, and India is completely neutral and independent if it wants to be, and it often is. I think we need a strategy for the global south, and that's where the threat is. And then the resurgence of the BRICS, the BRICS Plus, which yeah. I thought was a kind of a, you know, a nothing burger. This is Brazil and Russia and India and China. And, and, China. and others. And it's BRICS Plus. Um, they're trying to de-dollarize themselves. They're trying to, um, you know, build themselves into a greater, um, you know, power block. We have no way to persuade those countries that will be of the future. And in particular, we have no Africa strategy, but that by population alone will be the biggest um, set of nations on earth. Interesting set of points there because perhaps our own prejudice, Mm -hmm. European prejudice, where we tend to think of ourselves, that is the United States, as our competitive advantage, our allies, partners, and friends. And as you're outlining it right now, it actually would seem to me you can make the case, as you've done, that China may be better positioned, particularly as you think about the global south in terms of partnerships. And I'm not quite sure they would have any allies, but at least partnerships and 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 relationships that would be advantageous and a common set of interests that uh, would work against U.S. interests. And we have to we have to deal with that. That that, that would I be a piece of challenge. challenge yeah, that, yeah. And to get out of a mentality that we have something that they really need. And so, you know, the um, Biden administration has been going to certain African leaders and saying, here's the evidence on the Wagner group. And they're not really here to help you. They, you know, these mercenaries are here to kill you. Right. And, and I think when you find yourself in that position as a great power, you've already lost. Mm -hmm. You're bringing files on the Wagner group of paramilitary organizations, um, you know, that's, supported by the Kremlin. I think that's an example of not understanding um, who these people are and how important they are. And we are used to the Cold War model. You you pick a side, east or west, you go with us if you want aid. Um, and we're still doing that now. These nations are more sophisticated. The non-aligned movement of the 40s and 50s finally grew up. So you have more strategic actors they want something from Russia. They want something from China. They want something from us. That means diplomacy um, on steroids. Maybe we'll move now, uh, as Karen, you were talking about China and its relationships and how we have to really, the United States hasn't really uh, put itself in the best position to deal with China's uh, relations, particularly global south. Why don't you talk about the Russia-China no limits relationship. Of course, this became widely discussed and known and made public prior to the Winter Olympics uh, that took place in China uh, a year or so ago. How do you view that, the no limits, and then maybe integrate, sprinkle a little Ukraine there, which I think has tested the limits of the no limits relationship? 
I, I do see that as um, a natural development with the Global South strategy of China. And I began to say that Russia and China were more in concert than most experts believed around 2017. Mm. So I'm on record saying, look at SCO. This is a, it's, it's not NATO, it's not the EU, it's not that powerful, but it's an organizing place. And it's kind of a proxy or metaphor for um, what will emerge between those two sides. There are natural tensions that will be there, like who's going to control the stands. So I think there will, they will never be um, as cozy as they um, appear right now. But this is a strong marriage of convenience, and it will, I think, deepen in the years ahead. Um, and we don't know how to deal with that kind of um, um, set of challenges as well. Well, we, Kissinger dealt with it. Uh, not that it was a, a Russia-China axis. He was actually preying on uh, natural divisions, which he he uh, exploited, shall we say, for the benefit of the United States. But right. certainly now it seems to be something that the United States won't yeah. won't be able to come between for the and foreseeable future. The, you know, because of RussiaGate and the and the and the stupid Ru Russia hoax, it's really blocked us from developing a bipartisan Russia strategy. I mean that what that night nightmare of 2016, I think it's just almost unforgivable from a national security standpoint um, because there was nothing to it. And it confused the American public about Russia and that Trump was somehow, you know, working closely behind the scenes with Vladimir Putin when I think um, Vladimir Putin understood his place. I just really doubt we'd be in the Ukraine war if Trump were there. There was just no hint. Um, and, you know, this goes to Nord Stream 2, which, you know, the Biden administration turned the spigot on. Um, all of the things that um, Trump was doing to really um, box Russia in got presented the opposite way by his detractors. No doubt that the Trump administration and perhaps by sheer force of Trump's personality and different people can explain this different ways resulted in Vladimir Putin being deterred. He leaves office. That is, Trump leaves office and the Biden administration comes in. We have Afghanistan withdrawal. We have Nord Stream 2. You have language of accommodation, you know, just uh, a small bit of territory, right? The result or what follows is Vladimir's Putin's invasion of Ukraine in February uh, 2020. And here we are a year plus later, and we have a major war on the European continent, not deterred by any stretch. Yes. And that's, um, you know, I don't want to blame it all on the Biden administration, but I do think how the U.S. moves in the world affects the calculations of all the other great powers and of other actors as well. And um, there is a major concern that should not be dismissed among those many on the far right and the far left about whether Ukraine is our war. And so, you know, I have been on record, especially in those early weeks of the invasion, saying that this was ground zero for the freedom fight. Um, but over time, you have to, I think, get a better sense of what America's interests are. That's really a hard conversation for bipartisan elites in Washington. Um, they have their view. This is the war that we should be in. But if you spend time in the heartland, and I'm a, you know, I've been a Pennsylvania voter for about 20 years, mm. there's a very different conversation. 
And I don't think that outside of the Trump world, um, there on, on the right, there is an attempt to really understand where our national interest is in this conflict. Sounds to me like there needs to be some sort of recognition and effort to work with Americans who are skeptical about supporting Ukraine, certainly the levels. That's what usually what the focus is, the amount of dollars going towards Ukraine. Is, is it a deeper problem than that, or is it one of a, of a fiscal commitment to the conflict? Um, I think it is a fiscal commitment to the conflict, the length of the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, once a war hits a certain number of months, it, it lasts for a long time. And peace talks take years. So once you're in after year one, you're in for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's the history of it. And then trying to understand we're out one day from Afghanistan, but then we're in the next day um, in in a European conflict. Why and how does all of this yeah. add up? Um, and I think that's a, a big question. And how much, you know, we're growing closer at what point does aid short of war lead to war? That's the story of the 1930s. Well, yeah, though that's 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 certainly a side of it. And the other side is is if you can weaken an adversary. Yeah. And in this case, the adversary is is Russia and diminish their military power, which the Ukrainians have done without a boot on the ground. You know, I I can easily make an argument that that was a great value, pennies on the dollar. Uh, in terms of the way we've, that the Ukraine, not the United States, has deteriorated uh, Russian military power. All good points. You want this done quickly. You want you don't want to have some sort of escalation where it brings the United States in, which is the stuff of, of, of statesmanship, right? And, and diplomacy is required, uh, which you may or may not think the Biden administration is capable of. Capable of. I think there's a lot of uh, conservative Republican skeptics uh, of Ukraine in part because of uh their lack of confidence in the Biden administration kind of delivering an outcome uh, that they would, that they would seek. Um, I think that's true. But I also think you mentioned, you know, is it a matter of um, experts basically talking to the American public and explaining why this war matters? I think experts lack such legitimacy Mm. with millions of Americans that there's nothing they can say um, because they've been wrong on so many of the big questions around um, war and peace in our time. So I think there's a legitimacy issue that's that those in, that live in the beltway don't see and maybe don't care. Um, but ultimately the taxpayer does matter. And this is not a war that's being, I think, fully um, vetted through the American voter. And that's why I think the presidential election in some way will be as much about foreign and defense policy as it is about our failing economy. Well, that's a, a great point. I mean, you look at China, as we were discussing earlier, Russia, Ukraine. We haven't hit on some of the other challenges. Iran, which you've written about, you can see the sort of moment in time where foreign policy and national security policy, which isn't kitchen table normally in, uh, in presidential elections very much, uh, becoming a, a priority conversation and discussion. We're seeing that in our Reagan National Defense Survey in terms of these issues, uh, top of mind for the American people. Uh, so much more I want to discuss with you, Dr. Chiron Skinner, uh, Reagan scholar, foreign policy expert. It will have to wait for the next time where we get you in the 
DC office of the Reagan Foundation and Institute here uh, in our media room. Uh, but we'll end off like we do all our shows with our lightning round, our Reagan lightning round, where we ask our guests to share their favorite Reagan book, favorite Reagan speech, and favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two, or just one. Certainly, uh, you are perhaps the most qualified person of any we've had on the show to answer this question. What comes to mind, Karen? Um, probably two books. Um, one that was a series of lectures um, by Ambassador Thomas Simons, and it was End of the Cold War. I think it was a question mark. No footnotes, small little volume, and he basically establishes the American strategy for ending the Cold War in, in that book. No one, for the most part, cites it now, mm -hmm. um, but I think it was really um, one of the finer, more erudite attempts to understand the strategy of the 1980s. Um, another isn't exactly a book, but I do think you can find it on Amazon. And it's something like realism, strength, and negotiation. And it's a set of speeches by Reagan and Schultz and maybe a few others. And it was published around 84, 85. But it's the body of work that establishes what was their grand strategy, which is known as the four-part agenda. Most people don't even know what that is. And that was their um, attempt to keep arms control, regional issues, human rights, trade, and bilateral concerns all moving at the same time. You'll see the elements there. Um, and then we discussed that at the Commonwealth Club. Yes, you know, you laid that out. Again, yes. no one, no one looks at these things. And then finally, um, Reagan in his own voice, the CD that you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, that um, we, um, Marty Anderson was an Annalise as well, and she was really important in the projects, um, turned Reagan's um, old vinyl tapes found in the Hoover archives into CDs. It's his last conversation with the American public. Nancy Reagan, Ed Meese, Dick Allen, Judge Clark, George Schultz, the Andersons and me, all in studios. Um, explaining Reagan's um, radio essays. Really important. Reagan, his own voice. Great place to end here. When you finish listening to this show, go ahead and download it. You can get an Audible or elsewhere and listen to Dr. Kaiwan Skinner and others uh, give you context for those radio addresses. Dr. Kaiwan Skinner, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been an honor. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.